You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Today's episode was brought to you by Blueheart, the easy-to-use, expert-designed app for couples who are experiencing difficulties with libido, one of the most common sexual challenges that couples come up against. Blueheart are challenging the taboo around the subject by making getting help and advice more accessible. Blueheart is removing some of the barriers to make sex therapy possible for everyone. They offer expert-led therapeutic techniques, activities, education and guided conversations, all from the app so that you can prioritise your relationship and sexual well-being in a way that works for you at your own pace. The Blueheart app is available to download now on Android and iPhone. Today we're going to be discussing two things that aren't often held in conversation together, and that pairing is sex and loss. I'm so flattered that one of the UK's leading psychotherapists and one of the most recognisable voices in this area is the amazing Julia Samuel MBE, who's going to be joining me for this conversation. Julia is the author of two Sunday Times bestselling books, one being Grief Works, which I've recommended time and time and time again to so many people, and that's also been published in 17 countries. The second is her new book, This Too Shall Pass, Stories of Change, Crisis and Hopeful Beginnings. At St Mary's Hospital Paddington, Julia established the post of psychotherapist for paediatrics, where her role for 25 years involved seeing families who have children or babies who die, and where she trained and supported the staff. On top of that, she worked to help launch and establish Child Bereavement UK and was awarded an MBE in recognition of her services to bereaved children. Julia, I feel like this is such a massive, massive topic, but one that often doesn't get discussed. And I guess where I wanted to start is when it comes to loss and grieving and the impact that we might see on sex and intimacy. What's really interesting about thinking about this is it's something that I've seen come into my therapy room quite a bit not necessarily kind of consciously or acutely or people saying, I think I'm struggling with sex because of a loss I've experienced or because of grieving. But once we start unpacking it, there is a theme there or an idea there. Again, I often talk about is the flip side of love being loss. And so opening up to intimacy, which sex is included in, can be so challenging for people. But do you think that loss means that we can feel afraid to risk or to take risks or to be emotionally connected to people again? I mean, yes, there's a, that's a big question in a way and there's, a, there's never one clear answer. <clears throat> and I'm delighted to be on your podcast. And in a way, sex and death are completely interconnected. I mean, Freud, the, the father of all therapies, talked about eros and thanatos, sex and death. And so, you know they are the opposite of each other. So they're always two sides of the same coin. And Mm. um, in fact, your sexual kind of energy is not, is what the components of your sexual energy are parallel to the components of your energy when you're grieving. So they're physical, they're emotional, they're what you're th- what they what you think, your mind and your body are interconnected. So if one process is going on in the body, of course it will affect your libido and your desire and your appetites as it does in all aspects of yourself, your hunger, your energy to exercise, your ability to to think even. So we're such complex beings. So 
when we experience loss, and it can be grief from death, um, a kind of irreversible loss, or as we've experienced so much this year, it can be grief from multiple things, the breakup of a relationship, as you mentioned, living in a global pandemic where your kind of daily activities are completely curtailed, losing a job. And all of those have the same, give you a grieving process where you feel sadness and anger and confusion and stuckness. So that's the kind of, if you like, a backdrop image. And then Mm. from my experience with, you know, obviously hundreds of clients in in the last 30 years, people can have their libido and wish for intimacy and closeness can completely plummet. It can heighten their libido and need for sexual energy and sexual connection and hunger for contact, or it cannot change it at all. So it's, you know, like with all things grief, it's very individual. But I think in relation to intimacy and sort of sexual engagement, erotic engagement, if you like, a lot of the issues when we experience loss is around control, and mm. which, of course, is, is pivotal in, in um, sort of pleasure and sex. And once you know that something has ended, whether it's a relationship or someone has died, you can't not know it. So if you have issues around control anyway, that will definitely press those buttons and you'll Mm. want to have more control. It may mean you want to have more control sexually or less control sexually and want to withdraw completely, but it will definitely push those buttons. And, you know, as you know better than I do, love is a risky business. And, (laughs) you know, intimacy, sharing yourself, um, who you are from the inside and who you feel yourself to be um, is what builds a strong relationship. But it takes a lot of courage and vulnerability to to open that side of yourself. So obviously, paradoxically, when when we're under threat and we're in a fight or flight on a ride, you know, on alert, when we are, when we're grieving, that's a bigger step to overcome, to kind of go naked emotionally as well as, well as physically with someone mm. <laughs> that's rather a long answer sorry <laughs> <laughs> no I was a great I was I was completely kind of enthralled by what you were saying because I think control comes up in every single conversation I have with clients with every single person I've worked with I I, I can't think of one person it's not been relevant for and the sense of feeling out of control that can become well can can kind of be accompanied with sex is massive for people and I suppose if we have experienced a loss or a death which even if it is expected is out of control then feeling out of control already means that leaping into the abyss of sex where we are at least temporarily kind of um, extended, I suppose, in, a, in an out-of-control space is absolutely terrifying for people. And I think when we unpack what's going on for people in therapy, it might be something that they haven't connected at all to how they're feeling. 
And actually, when we talk about it, we say, okay, well, when this started, what was going on around that time? And then they're like, oh, well, you know, my mother died, but that's not relevant to this. That was just something else that was happening. And there are so many of those connections, I think, that I've made from working with people. But as you said, it it might not change things at all. It might kind of really heighten things or it might completely um, dampen things. But actually, the flip side that I've seen is a sense of, and, and this is a phrase people often use, kind of the idea of almost pushing the fuck it button is, okay, well, if that can happen to anyone at any time, then I want to feel, I want to explore, I want to play, I want to feel alive. And that's something that sex can offer. Completely. And yes, I mean, there is nothing like someone you love dying to know that you're powerless. You know, that irreversibility Mm. of it, you can smash your head against that wall of their death all you like and nothing, nothing is going to change. So um, you're right, of course, it presses that button. And, you know, I had a case study in Grief Works where someone's husband was dying and while he was dying, she went and had sex regularly with people she knew, with people she didn't know. And for the reasons you say that life is a is a fuck you to death and it's a life force, it's, you know, it's the opposite of death. Um, and you can use the pleasure of it to block pain. You can... Um, have sex physically but but not be open to intimacy or emotionally you can just use it as a kind of as a as a anesthetic if you like a sort of pleasurable anesthetic my when i'm working with people the thing i am aware of that when you are grieving whatever the reason you're much more vulnerable so your layers of skin of protection are, are very raw and your capacity to make kind of sound judgments and put yourself in the right places is definitely diminished. So, you know, when people are grieving, they're vulnerable. And so, you know, I love them going off and having sex, but I ask them to be sure that the person they're having sex with, that they're both after the same thing or... You know, it can ignite, you know, because loss always brings back early attachment issues. It can bring back early wounds of abandonment. You can make your grief much worse. Um, if you've if you've gone on a dating app, you're meeting someone, they've met you five or six times, you have amazing sex, and then they ghost you, which is very common in my experience. Mm. So mm. what I say to people is just, you know, use as much wisdom, use your friends or someone to support you to make sure that you don't harm yourself while you're doing this. Because I suppose we are exposed, I guess is the word that kind of comes to mind. And as you said, if if the layer if there are less layers of protection, then also what we see, I suppose, is people jumping straight into something else, don't we? And so there's a sense of wanting to cling on to something. So we see people bouncing into a new relationship or, as you said, dating. Or And if that doesn't work, it's kind of loss on top yeah. of loss. It's layering. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing we forget is that when we talk about these things, they're not necessarily always isolated incidents or someone might have experienced a whole timeline of of yeah I mean a new loss will always bring back a previous loss 
you know, so mm. when I see clients whose, you know, partners may have died 18 months ago and they're ready, you know, they're, they're not in a kind of intense period of grieving. They want to go out and meet people. They They feel kind of, you know, ready to put their head above the parapet. But it's quite scary, you know, because, mm. you again, you know that you can be left and, you, and you know, one bad experience with someone can set you back, you know, quite a long way. But the other, the other thing I was kind of thinking of is that, you know, one of my things about grieving is that pain is an agent, is the agent of change and that we need mm. to respect the grieving process and give it the time it takes. And that by no means precludes having sex. Of course, have sex while you're grieving. Um, and it might be a, a really wonderful place of sustenance and connection and a feeling of closeness that you can retreat to when you've been in a lot of pain. So that is a good thing. But when you're using it as a kind of weapon to push the grief away, you're not necessarily serving yourself in the way that you want to. So, you know, it's such a... It, it's such a complicated thing. And a distraction. I was going to say on a kind of practical level, but I suppose on an emotional level as well, you know, something to take our attention, to to take us away from focusing on, on what, what and And I think that's a good thing. You know, you don't mm. want... you could, Grief has a kind of life of its own and it comes through your body like waves. So you can't really be in charge of it. But I think... You know, if you kind of look at the things that I talk about, that if you create structure where you kind of give time to focus on the grief and you find ways of expressing your grief, that can free you to be diverted, to be distracted, to get on with your day, to have a nice time, to have sex, to walk with a friend, to watch a movie, and that you oscillate between loss and restoration, and one can free you to do the other. So... If you're in a loving relationship and your mum has died, then having sex with your partner can kind of really help you when you go back and do the painful work. I think it's more complicated when your partner has died because, you know, we have capacity to love multiple people at the same time. And when someone dies, you, you, the grieving process is to physiologic to kind of psychologically and physiologically adjust the reality that they've died whilst the relationship continues and the love continues and but part of that is recognizing the reality of the death because one of the things that blocks people from having the next relationships is feeling that their partner is looking at them from heaven watching them having pleasure and they feel guilty like they're being unfaithful to them so that, you know, the relationship is still very much alive in people. Um, and society has lots of judgments about when we're allowed to, yeah. to have another relationship, your family, your children. Mm. Um, somehow that, you know, if you're grieving, you shouldn't be having sex. It's, you know, it sounds incredibly Victorian. You should be wearing black, um, being miserable, but then for three months and then you should, you know, click out of it. And grief is by no means time restrained like that not linear like that and also we are complex being beings that have many needs and they can all 
kind of seek to be met at the same time. Mm. And you you covered one of the points that I wanted to ask you about, which was this this idea for some people that they may feel in some way guilty for moving on or for experiencing pleasure or enjoyment of feeling life because it's it's almost a reminder for what the person who has died has no longer got and there's that sense of you you tapped into it in the in the start of our conversation but I suppose it might make them feel further apart from that person because they've lost that person but they are moving towards something that feels different or further Exactly. I mean, it's a, you know, the process of grieving is facing the reality of the death. And every new thing you do and every first time you do it, it's a, it's a kind of stab of reality. So if you think about being in the bed you were with your, with your husband for 30 years, where all his smells and all the sex you had and the rows you had and the Christmases and birthdays are in that bed, and then you bring somebody home to that bed, there's a lot of stuff going on Mm. below the waterline. It must feel like a colliding of two worlds for some people. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's, you know, when I'm working with clients, you know, I had an amazing client who's in my next book, This Two Shall Pass, whose husband um, divorced her and she was 75 and she had a, a, a strong libido and she started feeling sexually attracted to people sort of six months after they'd separated. And she had two or three kind of short relationships. And then she's now actually in a in a really kind of exciting new relationship. And it, it, honestly, it's like when she talked about that, she looked 18. It's like the feelings that we have around sex and love do not age. Um, but the thing with her is she... She'd had good enough good relationships with men that she had quite a lot of confidence. She had confidence in her body. She had confidence in having sex. She enjoyed sex. She knew it was an important part of her well-being. She, it was something she'd really enjoyed all her life. Um, so where am I going with this? Where I'm going with it is that your relationship with sex like everything, is very unique and individual. Um, And Mm. so the message I'm trying to get to rather slowly (laughs) is that you need to know yourself, kind of know yourself Mm. and what your needs are, what your vulnerabilities are, what supports you, and then use that to inform you in how you meet your sexual desires and needs. Um, And a lot of people I see masturbate while they're grieving because it requires much less risk. I mean, it's no risk. Gives them pleasure, it helps them sleep, it calms them down, they feel less anxious. And, you know, that's often what they use as a resource in the first months. I guess it's um, a way of self-soothing. Yeah. And a relief from the pain for a short moment, but doesn't ask anything of anybody else. It doesn't expose you. I was going to say, I'm so pleased you've said that, because I suspect that would be so normalizing for people to hear and it's something that you know I've talked to people about and they're like is this okay that I'm doing this you know I feel like I shouldn't be doing this or but just to hear someone say yes yeah (laughs) yes it is and it's I mean I think masturbating is an incredibly powerful tool for everyone um 
And mm. But, you know, when you're grieving, you can feel old and grey inside. You can be 25, you can have broken up with a boyfriend, and the idea of sex is the last thing in the world. You look at your body and it feels like cinders. So it's not necessarily age, it's sort of who you are and what happens to you. Um, and... But, you know, maybe, for, so when I work with a young person who was like that, masturbating was a way in to revive her sexual relationship with herself, where she could mm. kind of try things out and explore herself and not be covered in shame. And um, and then that kind of tiptoed her way towards quite a long time later. All these things take much longer than anybody wants um, to going out and dating. Yeah. Mm. And... I guess the other thing that I was thinking is for some people who've experienced a loss or a death in a way they it may release them in some way from some of their sexual inhibitions or fear of judgment no longer with that person there because they can have the freedom to sexually be themselves because so often obviously we see you know the, the kind of obvious example I guess I'm thinking of here is someone exploring their sexuality who feels that they couldn't when their parents were alive, for example. Um, but I suppose in a way, there's that flip side, isn't there? There can be the absolute devastation that someone is no longer here, but in a way, a freedom or an untangling that comes with that. And, uh, you know, as we're, we're saying, all of this is so complicated, but we can have those two feelings simultaneously. Yes. I mean, you know, that... Uh... That you know, with it, when we meet a new person, we can discover a new version of ourselves that we didn't know that existed, and it may be someone of the same gender who we'd never even thought that we were interested in in you know sex with the same with a woman of the or man or of the same gender. So it can be an amazing discovery um, and a release, but you know, and sex is like cocaine, right? I mean, it goes to the the part of your brain, the sort of pleasure-seeking part of the brain that sends the neurotransmitters kind of crazy. And that's incredibly exciting. But of course, you always revert in the end back to your kind of default version of yourself. I mean, you grow and change with this mm. person. Um, but you, as the process of in that new relationship kind of settles, you have to kind of re your your old self will come up to and your previous relationship. So, you know, I think we're always changing and we're always adapting. And from what you're saying, the thing that I would encourage people is to listen to yourself and trust mm. yourself to your signals, to what your emotions are telling you, your emotions are are the fast track transmitters of what is going on in you. Don't deny them. And also engage your thinking, so your feelings and your thinking, and go through that process for yourself. And those that don't block the change, who don't fear it, are more likely, people who are more adapt adaptive, are more likely to be more resilient and thrive. So in your example, if people don't have messages from their grandparents and their parents and those around them telling them, that, you know, you can't be this type of person or that you can't start a new relationship or sex is disgusting. If you if you can work out your own relationship with it 
in the new situation that you find yourself in, whether you've divorced or your partner has died or you've left or whatever it is, learn to know yourself so then you're meeting your internal self with your external behaviour. And then that you're more likely then to have good outcomes. Does that make sense? Mm. The closing the gap between the inner world and the outer world, isn't it? Yes, and sex is so much in the brain, isn't it? I mean, it is to do with your genitalia, but it's much more to do with your brain and your imagination. And, you know, as Esther Perel talks about, your erotic energy. And um, so the messages you're telling yourself are a circuit breaker or or an expander. Um, So you need to know what those messages are um, so that you can put them down or or pay attention to them. Mm, Absolutely. And, you know, so much of, you know, if not the biggest part of sex is the meaning that we make of it, is what it represents to us or what we think it means about us. You know, the the act of the doing of sex can be completely different depending on how we think about or feel about what we're doing. And, um, you know... I'm always fascinated by like metacognition. So the idea that, you know, we can think about our thinking, we can think about our thoughts Mm. and it's how as humans that can completely change our perspective or our experience of where we're at or how we're doing. Completely. And of course, meaning, finding meaning both in our grief and in our life is, you know, a, a big component of resilience and robustness. So that meaning kind of is interwoven into every aspect of our lives, of what our purpose is, the relationships, as you said, we have, relationships with people who've died, relationship with ourselves, all of that is very informed by our belief system and the meaning we make of it. Um, and as you say, being able to think about that, to stand out from yourself and be able to reflect on the choices that you're making in the way that you're living and what you you know what you're actually doing is a really helpful way to kind of meet yourself accurately. I do think kind of doing it with a friend or a therapist, obviously, but with your kind of best friend or your sibling or your parents, because often when you have the thoughts in your head, they kind of go, they on a loop and you don't Mm. really know what you think until they come out of your mouth or they're at the end of a pen when you journal. And so, because you can really fool yourself when it goes round and round in your head. Um, And so I think you need to find a way of expressing them either verbally with someone or or by journaling. Mm. So in a way, kind of getting getting them out. Yeah, yeah. Gives you much more information. We've been talking about loss, I suppose, kind of inherently connected to the loss of a person or death. But I guess I was just thinking as you were talking about the idea of a loss of a future or a potential, you know, something like infertility um, or miscarriage. And I've worked with a lot of people and couples who are trying to conceive or dealing with infertility or having IVF or have had multiple miscarriages and sex is then the vehicle to pregnancy becomes absolutely terrifying Mm. and it can completely interrupt their entire relationship, intimacy, um, togetherness, physical intimacy, you know, really turn their relational world upside down. But 
I suppose we're mourning there or feeling that we've lost is our what we think our future or thought our future was going to look like or our ideas about how we thought our life would be. And we can see those expectations and realities acted out sexually and intimately as well. Absolutely. I mean, that is a, a real loss. It's If you can't get pregnant, it's a living loss. And if you've had a, a miscarriage, of course, the moment you conceive, you imagine having a baby. So it isn't the number of weeks the gestational age of the baby when the baby dies that that um, measures the level of your loss, but the dream that you had and how much you wanted this baby. And mm. so, it, you know, it's multiple losses. losses. And I think it, it's one of the places there where men and women grieving differently can really get in the way. In that the women feel if it's their body that's failed, you know, that it may be the men's sperm, but... You know, if it, when it's a miscarriage or or if the root is the woman's fertility, she can feel such a failure and like her body is 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 sort of broken, and she can be so angry with herself as well, so as so ashamed, as well as furious with all the pregnant women and families that they see. So you become a version of yourself that you absolutely don't want to be. Um, and fathers can be as furious, but women kind of tend to ruminate and the anger kind of really boils under because an anger is an expression of hurt, like, ow, oh, this is really hurting me. And men tend to want to look for solutions, want to go forward and keep going, like they want to start the IVF again. And women tend to be loss-oriented. They, they need to grieve and remember and ruminate and go over it and cry. And so as a couple, she can be saying, take your stinking dick away from me. I don't ever want to have sex again. And he's saying, come on, you know, we've had a miscarriage. You're 39. We need to keep going, you know, and that can be a real um, battle. And mm. when sex, it's again our thinking around sex, isn't it? If it's performative, the minute it becomes performative for any reason, in this case, it's for um, pregnancy, kind of tons of the pleasure goes away because you're controlling it, you're trying to perfect it, you're looking at your ovulation kit, you're saying five o'clock, come and do it to me now, you know, and all of that is such uh, an erotic killer. I mean, for anyone that you can understand that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I've worked with a good kind of handful of individual male clients who are struggling with erections and ejaculation and orgasm because of the anxiety around trying to conceive um because it is or the anxiety around um getting pregnant again because they've experienced miscarriage yeah i can so totally see that yeah and i think that they're you know it's almost like their body is kind of saying what they can't say which is this really scares yeah. me or, you know, the fear about things happening again or the disappointment. And it's been, um, you know, it, it's been a really a recurrent theme. I've seen it. It's not just, you know, a one off like this is a good kind of handful of people, as I said, that I've worked with. And it feels so apparent to me that the anxiety of 
the uncertainty or the unknown is what has completely interrupted their ability to be able to enjoy it or to be able to connect. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it was 25 years in the NHS. I supported families where babies and children had died. So it was, it was what I did every day for 25 years. So I've really seen the pain of that. And, of course, once you have had the experience that a baby can die, whatever the, the number of weeks, you can't not know that a baby can die. Um, and mm. that's viscerally in your body. And so as much as... And it's this is terrifying kind of combustible pulls, pushes and pulls of desperately wanting a baby as much as you're terrified of getting pregnant as much as you desperately want to have be pregnant as much as this is the one thing you have no control over which is the thing you want to have most control over and often that you know it's in people who they've done everything right all their life not often but I mean one of the types of people I saw is people who'd passed their exams gone to university ticked every box and then this thing, and so they've, you know, working, willing yourself to make something work, had worked for them. But with pregnancy, all the tools that you've used in your life are completely redundant. So mm. you don't have a toolkit. kit. I remember um, someone saying to me, I feel like a startup. You know, I just feel like I've just started, I'm a, just a different version of myself, this version of myself I never wanted and I really don't like, who doesn't know how to do anything. And, mm. you know, so building their confidence in themselves and letting themselves grieve for the future that they haven't got. And you have to have hope. Hope is the alchemy that turns a life around. So how you hold mm. both the dark and the fear and the hope side by side is what in the end allows them to kind of come through. But they have to grieve it first. And I think often in couples, you've probably seen them after they've tried to fast track it, like... You know, they've had the miscarriage. The doctor says, you're fine to start again. And, you know, six weeks later, they're trying. But then it's like, oh, only then is just mm. the reality of the death beginning to hit them. And it's too soon. You know, people need time mm. to grieve. I listened to an interview the other day. I think it was Elizabeth Day and um, Emma Barnett. And she said, I think this was where it was from. Um, she was had endometriosis, the... didn't she, Emma Barnett? Yeah, she did. And she said, um, the despair I could cope with, the hope I could yeah. not. Yeah. And I thought it was a really, something along those lines, but I really remember it and I really... Um, Got it. I thought, oh, that is a really, yeah. Um, I, I've, I've, you know, I've talked about it before. I'm someone who's experienced miscarriage mm. myself. Oh. It's um, something that I have personally been through, but also kind of work with a lot. I work with a lot of people in their 30s yeah. who are in that kind of transitional stage of their lives. And I think that it's it was something really interesting to me because it was the idea of kind of daring mm. to hope and the flip side of that being kind of having to put yourself out there time again, you know. And the risk. that's what people are doing sexually, I think, as well, is the yeah. risk of yeah. having sex means the risk of getting your hopes up means the risk of having it crashing disappoint exactly um and I suppose it's a bit what it's like in love 
is it not? Like learning yeah, to live again or in relationships. And, it's a risky business. Mm, and it's something I've seen um, kind of th- used therapeutically and discussed a lot therapeutically is how we can look at relationships or breakups as those losses or that we can kind of move through like a grief curve process mourning a, the, a relationship breakup and some people have said don't you think that's a bit dramatic don't you think that that's we're talking about mourning a relationship or the loss of a relationship like a death but it's it is it, it, yeah exactly um, <laughs> I mean, there's no question and um, you didn't bury them mm, but it's dead and um I guess I wanted to ask you about that because so much of the work I do is about relationships um but can we can we apply those same ideas and thinking to relationship breakdown completely i mean the the grief you feel for the end of a relationship to a great extent will be measured by the emotional investment in the relationship so if this was a a long relationship or one where you know you were really in love with this person and you kind of thought this is this is my person and this is me going forward You know, I mean, obviously you could be polyamorous or all the different versions of yourself in relationship. But um, if we go kind of the traditional view that I'm committed to this relationship and I want to have a family with this person and then it ends, as you said, a bit like with miscarriage, it's the dream of your future ends in that moment. The version of yourself who is with that person as a couple dies in that moment and your kind of trust in love and in your ability to hold love and your self-confidence and your self-esteem to be someone that is lovable and someone who can kind of um, get their needs met. And of course, by society as well, you know, one of the big things I've noticed working with, with people is that when you go out as a single person, you are definitely treated differently than if you go out as a couple. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm-hmm. you know, this the the older woman who I saw who's in this two shot pass. You know, she went when she was in her seventies and she was single after she separated. It's her second divorce. When she went to stay with a friend, you know, she was put in the child's bedroom with a Batman wallpaper. Whereas when she'd gone, you know, six months earlier, she'd been put in the main guest suite. Um, And she was treated very differently. She was asked to kind of empty the dishwasher, do things in a way that she never had been when she was a couple. So you're kind of, you know, from that primitive tribal sense, you are, you know, if you're in a couple, you you kind of have a kind of standing and you're equal. And the minute you're single, you're much more vulnerable in so many ways. So you're grieving so many layers of and levels of yourself. Um, and all the feelings mm. that come with that are, you know, as I said at the beginning, are anger and hurt and sadness and fury and numbness and bitterness and, you know, all the sort of cocktail of emotions that we feel around loss from grief, from death. Mm. And I remember someone once saying to me, they were like, it's just the daily reminders, like going to Marks and Spencers and it being a meal for two. Yeah. You know, I am just a one. And I um, thought, yeah, like the daily reminders, like the little things that yeah. are little stabs. Can really kind of exactly can really feel like a stab or a slap. And I think you use the word anger there. Um, yeah. Someone once described to me 
that anger is like putting up a red umbrella, that it's a distraction for what's behind it. And I wanted to ask if you thought that was true. No, I don't think that's true. Um, I think anger is an expression of hurt. It's a primitive emotion. Actually, like sex drive is a primitive emotion. It's there. We're wired to have anger to protect us from danger. Like, oh, you're hurting me. It needs to be expressed. Fear is the anticipation Mm. of hurt. Anger is the expression of hurt. And it's an incredibly important emotion. And often anger, finding ways of expressing your anger when you're grieving is a big part of the curative process of grieving. You know, when you don't express anger, it goes in against yourself. And that's when you're much more likely to have complicated grief or be depressed. So anger is a life force as much as sex is a life force, if you like. And, Mm. you know, I think, again, there's stigma around women being angry, um, that Mm. men are more likely allowed to, you know, men men are thought of as angry and women are kind of thought of as as difficult. Um, So all of those things are, are terrible judgments and against our human nature. So we need to find ways of, of, listening to our anger and finding ways of, of expressing it that doesn't hurt ourselves. So, you know, venting, screaming at someone, that doesn't really work. So you have to, I've done it. There's a thing in my book about it. There's sort of a five-step thing that helps you voice it and express it and then soothe yourself afterwards. Um, mm. So it's about allowing it and then knowing how to care yeah. for yourself. And all, a lot of this mm. is... At the heart of it is, you know, the the kind of two of the biggest pillars, if you like, is your relationship with yourself and your relationship with others. And you need to turn to your relationship with yourself, with knowledge and awareness, but with self-compassion, with kindness. Like when you're hurting or when you're furious, like, oh, you know, it's exhausting feeling angry. No one chooses to feel angry. You know, if you're walking down the street, you've just broken up and you see a couple kissing, you probably want to stab them and you don't want to be that person. Um, so, but it's to go like, oh, that hurt, and to kind of put your hands on your chest and be self-compassionate. But the thing we also need is relationship to others. So when we're grieving, the thing that predicts our outcomes is the love and connection to others. And that is multiple relationships so that it would be, you know, our partner relationships, our love relationships, but really our kind of team of of close network of people that support us. And we, you know, the path to curing your or to sort of healing and grief should be paved with people. You need lots of love and connection. Yeah, there's something, I guess, in a way to be human is to be in relation with others and sex and relationships are are no different exactly and the more we know about our sexual selves you know the 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 more supported and self-compassionate we can be with our sexual selves I'm so glad you're doing your podcast and kind of taking away the kind of secret buriedness of our sex lives um you know the more people that have a voice to to understand themselves then then the sort of better their well-being their sexual well-being and all of their well-being will be <laughs> mm, thank you that that was the plan yeah <laughs> the point just to be a little piece in the 
a piece yeah. of the puzzle. And I mean, talking of podcasts, do you, you have your podcast? It's coming out next week. Um, it's Elizabeth Day's my first guest. Dude, please let people know where they can read more of your work, hear more of your work. Um, that's really kind. So um, my first book is Grief Works, um, which is stories of, of people grieving and the, their case studies. And then the book this that last year um, is This Too Shall Pass, which is about living losses that we've talked about. And again, a case studies of people's relationship with love, work, health and their identity. Um, and in Grief Works, it's by relationship with their partner, their parent, their sibling, their child and facing their own death. So there are lots of sort of different case studies. So they can get them wherever they get their books. I've got a website, um, www.juliasamuel.co.uk, which has my eight pillars of strength, which might be something that people will find helpful. And my Instagram account which is where we find yes. each other, at Julia Samuel MBE. Um, amazing. And the Instagram lives you do, I love. I think they're absolutely amazing. Do um, you? Mm. They're good. I think there's so That's nice. much that can be learnt in conversation. Yeah. Um, which is exactly why I started this. But for me, conversation is is the, almost the best tool yeah. we have. And listening, really listening to each other. That is the sort of best communication tool, isn't it, really? I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.